welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. This is Bobby Stefan, and I'm here at the Cleveland Clinic with Dr. Nicholas Smadira, a staff surgeon in the Department of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery. Today we'll be talking about the surgical management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Dr. Spadir has published extensively on this disease and has performed over 2,000 septal myectomies on patients with this condition. Dr. Spadira, a 60-year-old female is seen by her primary care provider for shortness of breath. She has a history of hypertension for which she takes medication, but is otherwise healthy. The dyspnea developed recently and is worsening over the last few months. As part of her workup, a transthoracic echocardiogram was ordered which showed hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. She is subsequently sent by her PCP to your office for surgical evaluation. When you're seeing a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for the first time, what do you look for to determine if he or she would benefit from a septal myectomy? Well, thanks, Bobby. This is a fairly typical presentation. Uh, A woman who has a history of hypertension, now is short of breath. And so you begin to think of all the different... uh, possible causes of exertional dyspnea in somebody that has a history of hypertension, maybe a history of coronary artery disease. So we would go down the standard workup for somebody with cardiovascular risk factors, and he'd start with the basics, which would be a a good history and physical. The physical exam may give you a hint that there's uh, outflow tract obstruction because You'll have her do something as simple as bear down and hear that a murmur that wasn't there starts to appreciate to become more appreciable. And you say, ah, now I got an inducible murmur. Maybe this is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So the there are physical signs you'd look for. You'd obviously obtain an EKG. You'd probably get a baseline uh, echocardiogram, and then you take a a good look at her medications because if you're thinking that this might be hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with inducible outflow tract obstruction, it's not uncommon to find that the antihypertensive medications, such as ACE inhibitors or other afterload uh, reducing medications, will make outflow tract obstruction worse. So she may have become more symptomatic as the physicians address the hypertension with the idea that that's, she's got some hypertensive heart disease, let's manage the hypertension and she'll feel better and she actually feels worse because the medications are making her worse. And that's a fairly frequent finding when we um, first see a patient. So we may take them off an ACE inhibitor and start a beta blocker just to see, especially if we find outflow tract obstruction. So I'd send her down for an echocardiogram you know, get the EKG. When we do the echocardiogram, we get we, we do inducible maneuvers, which I think we can talk about, to try and bring out outflow tract obstruction if we're thinking that's the case. All right. On review of a reco, the patient was found to have an intraventricular septal thickness of 2 centimeters. At rest, she had a pressure gradient across her left ventricular outflow tract of 29 millimeters of mercury, systolic anterior motion of her mitral valve, and two to three plus holosystolic mitral regurgitation. On Valsalva, the gradient across her LVOT increased to 62 millimeters of mercury with no increase in her MR. After giving the patient a dose of amyl nitrate, her LVOT gradient increased to 97 millimeters of mercury, the SAM worsened, and she developed severe mitral regurgitation. Additionally, 
on her EKG, she was ordered to have a preoperative right bundle branch block. Now that you've identified that the, patient, that the patient would benefit from an operation, what additional information do you want to plan your surgery? Are there any additional tests you'd like? This is a fairly classic um, presentation as described. The septum is 20 millimeters in thickness. Normal is up to 13 millimeters. So this person has left ventricular hypertrophy. And she does have hypertension, so she has a secondary cause. But when you see something of 20 millimeters, that's, that's more than you'd expect for somebody with, with hypertension. And then you describe the maneuvers we go through to try and bring out obstruction. And with each of these more intense maneuvers from Valsalva to amyl nitrate, her gradient increases. And the mitral regurgitation increases um, uh, secondary to the systolic anterior motion. At this point, assuming you obtained a cardiac catheterization to rule out any coronary artery disease, you really could go to the, to the operating room without the need for anything further. We often get an uh, MRI scan, and the reason to do that is we are using it as a prognosticator for sudden cardiac death on the basis of the degree of gadolinium enhancement in terms of scar in the septum and in the heart, the greater the degrees of, of scarring, the, the what should I say, the, the uh, weighting we put on the risk for sudden cardiac death, it might di direct us towards recommending an ICD. So that's the reason to get an MRI. If we didn't have an MRI, I wouldn't, it's not absolutely necessary uh, as a pre-op diagnostic tool. Um, and after that, it's really uh, the intraoperative images on the transesophageal echo that guide how we do the surgery. The pre-op studies tell you they, you need surgery, and you can get some information, but I really rely on the intraoperative transesophageal echo to determine what the operation is going to consist of. Do we have the, uh, any intraoperative data? Yeah, so on review of the intraoperative transesophageal echo, this patient has a ma maximal thickness of the intraventricular septum of 2.0 centimeters. The site of maximal thickness is noted to be 1.8 centimeters below the nadir of the aortic valve leaflet. The point of septal contact of the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve was noted to be just above the site of maximal diameter. The mitral regurgitation jet is holosystolic and posteriorly directed. Additionally, as noted, this patient has a preoperative right bundle branch block. Knowing this, how would you proceed with your operation? So each one of those, uh, those points that you described are critical in doing the operation. It, the first thing that I note is that the point of SAM septal contact is 18 millimeters below the nadir of the right coronary cusp. The original description by Morrow uh, when he described his operation was to begin the incision three millimeters below the nadir of the right coronary cusp. In typical inducible obstruction, the area of obstruction is at least 15, often 18 to 20 millimeters below the, the cusp. So starting three millimeters below is unnecessary and it's dangerous for two reasons. One, it can destabilize the cusp, and two, it's more likely to injure the bundle of hiss. So always start, almost always start much deeper than the original description, and the transesophageal echo shows you that. 20 millimeters tells you how thick it is, 
and that guides the depth of your reception in terms of thickness. And then we look closely at, is the thickness a proximal bulge just in the base of the septum, or does it extend throughout the ventricle? Is it mid-cavitary? Is it apical? And that's how you determine how much and where you resect. So in this case, we would start and plan on the myectomy about 15 millimeters below the, the right coronary cusp, We'd extend it down well into the ventricle, and we would go from trigon to trigon. In addition, whenever you take out that amount of muscle, you end up with a left bundle branch block. The patient has a right bundle branch block, so there's almost certainty that she will need permanent pacing. So we would advocate putting epicardial pacing leads on. I put bipolar steroid eluding leads on the left ventricle and a set of leads on the right atrium and then tunnel tunnel them into a left subclavicular pocket so that when we're done with the operation the patient's uh, uh, done and ready to follow the uh, standard post-op recovery. This patient underwent a 6 gram myectomy and excision of an aberrant cord from the septum to the anterior mitral leaflet. Her post-pump transesophageal echo showed that her LVOT gradient had de decreased to 16 millimeters. There was no increase with administration of dibutamine. Additionally, her SAM had completely resolved. She was left with mild mitral regurgitation. She recovered from the operation without any issues. Her pacemaker check <clears throat> confirmed that she was in complete heart block. She was discharged from the hospital in four days. She was subsequently seen in the outpatient clinic two weeks later. She's wondering about the risk of her mitral regurgitation worsening. She also wants to know if there's a risk that it could recur and she would require another operation. Lastly, she has children and grandchildren and are wondering what needs to be done for them. So Bobby, you, you covered what we usually do um, uh, both intraoperatively with regards to the mitral valve and then how we assess our results. We On this patient, um, we took out some aberrant cords that went to the septum. It's very common that there's chordae coming off either one or both papillary muscles going to the septum. There's also the possibility of having uh, tethering secondary chordae to the mid-portion, mid-body portion of the anterior leaflet. We often resect them um, if, we, if they appear to be tethering or restricting the movement of the leaflet. Whenever we um, finish the myectomy before decannulating will always assess whether there's a inducible gradient. In the past we used to use isoprel and would give up to 20 mics of isoprel trying to get both a chronotropic and inotropic and a venodilatation properties of the drug. However that drug has become incredibly expensive so we use dobutamine at 20 mics per kilogram per minute. However, that often makes a patient hypertensive. And a high blood pressure will um, reduce the chance of developing SAM because there's this afterload from the high blood pressure. So when we give dobutamine, we also give nitroglycerin to reduce the blood pressure and also to venodilate. So the goal is to make the patient hypotensive, hypovolemic, and tachycardic, either through drugs or through epicardial pacing. And when you maximize those properties and don't have an inducible gradient, you've done a great myectomy. So we do that every time because we don't want to leave the operating room and find that 
in the post-operative period when we, we uh, stress the patient, she's got an inducible gradient. We also check to see whether there's a VSD. That's very rare. The, the key consideration to avoid a VSD is to make sure you know the septal thickness and to be aware that the septum varies in thickness going from the anterior side, which is underneath the RV outflow tract, to the inferior septum as described by the echocardiographers, which is underneath the membranous septum. And the septum is typically three to four millimeters thinner under the membranous septum relative to under the RV outflow tract. And the challenge for the surgeon is that it's much easier to see the thinner part of the septum than the thicker part of the septum. So we tend to cut where it's thin and don't see where it's thick. And that's why when we tend to have VSDs, they're almost just submembranous type VSDs because we see it, we can cut it, but it's usually the thinnest. So I tend to be very uh, cautious on the infraseptum and focus on the anteroseptum if that's what the echo shows. And nowadays with 3D echocardiography, they can show you the change in the septal thickness in three dimensions, and you can really have in your mind's eye um, a representation of how the, the, the um, septum changes. She did well, apparently, which is great. Uh, we do see that there are some percentage of patients that have central intrinsic mitral regurgitation after a myectomy. It's a relatively small percentage, but it's, it's, it's there. We reviewed the, you reviewed the data. You, why don't you tell the, the, the folks what we show, what showed? So we found that, um, uh, that it is very common that uh, people have a little bit of mitral regurgitation, right. about one plus um, pre-op. The patients, um, over 50% of patients have preoperative MR when they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, the number, the percentage of patients that are that have residual MR post-op is actually uh, uh, cut in half by the by the uh, operation. But as I said, it is it is common for them to have some. But uh, with follow-up data up to about five years, it looks like the MR doesn't tend to get any worse, uh, but it also doesn't seem to get any better. So if you leave the operating room with one or two plus MR, uh, you'd expect that you probably would still have one or two plus MR on uh, follow-up echoes. Yeah, that's that's right. So and it's not clear, is it, because the the valve has been thickened and beat up a little bit from all the SAM septal contacts, so it's a little restricted, or is there something related to the conduction abnormalities? Everybody gets a left bundle branch block, so is it related to a conduction pattern? So it's, it's not clear, but our sense is that leaving one to two, maybe even 2.5 after a myectomy is probably reasonable because we haven't seen a lot of patients come back. If somebody has three plus due to intrinsic mitral valve disease, then it's probably prudent at the time of surgery to replace the valve, uh, especially if it's a thickened and abnormal valve. Anybody that has mitral valve prolapse flail from a torn cordae, we obviously repair using standard techniques. We either oversize the annuloplasty or don't even put in an annuloplasty band so to avoid um, inducing SAM. And then finally, this, this patient's concerned about the uh, genetics, screening of children and grandchildren. It, there's a, a, what should I say, uh, a, a, some individuals, a, um, a group that focuses on the treatment and in, in counseling of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I have to say, it's, 
it's outside of my area of expertise. There's about 200 identified genes. So I tell patients one of the best ways to sort this out is to, to do gene testing, get a tube of blood, see if the, the patient is positive, and then it's much easier to screen kids uh, and or siblings and, and grandkids. Uh, without a genetic marker, then it's really uh, just screening echocardiography and then counseling. There are all these guidelines, there's European guidelines, there's US guidelines about who should exercise and who should play sports, and it's a, um, there's little evidence-based medicine to guide us on that. You know, there's, it's not clear if uh, a young person who's at no other risk factors and is gene positive but no hypertrophy should or should not be active. So I'd have to defer to counselors and folks, <coughs> excuse me, that are expert on that, but there are Anybody that has this disorder probably should seek out a center that has an expertise in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and seek, seek that type of counseling. Dr. Smadira, thank you very much for your time, and thank you to the TSRA for the opportunity to discuss the surgical management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Bobby, thank you.